So welcome to Drill to Detail, and I'm your host, Mark Whitman. I'm joined today by Bav Patel, who I've known from the London analytics scene for a number of years now, um, and he's currently head of uh, conversion at Teletext Holidays. So Bav, welcome to the show, and it's great to have you on here. Thank you, Mark. Um, it's nice to be here. Um, I was a bit nervous about doing this, but uh, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm excited, actually. Yeah, it'd be good. It'd be good. Well, it's great to have you here. And uh, so, Bav, I've known you um, for a while now. I knew you from, uh, from I think, when you worked at, at Labbrooks at one point, and I knew you when I worked at, at Qubit. But just tell us a little bit about, um, I suppose, your route into what you're doing now um, and, um, and what you've been doing the last few years, really. Yeah, um, so... I'm, as, as you mentioned, um, I'm currently the head of conversion for Teletext Holidays. Uh, for those, I usually get two responses when I say I work for Teletext Holidays. Um, who are they, which is common if you're um, under the age of 30, or they're still around um, if you're the, over the age of 30. Um, so they're a travel company. Um, and I guess my route into this role, uh, I, didn't, I didn't traditionally start off um, in analytics and optimization. After graduation, I actually fell into digital marketing and uh, a few years agency side um, allowed uh, th- was then followed by my first in-house role, which I realized was probably the right path for me and uh, working for a company called Photobox. And there I was, uh, I was kind of like heading up their search and acquisition um, section, session, uh, sorry, area. And that one, that was an interesting role for me because it was the first time I got to see beyond the click. So traditionally when you work agency side, you, you know, you're very much around the clicks, the, you know, the, the PPC, the ad copy, but then you lose sight of what happens to the customer once they make it onto the website. You don't have access to your, your, um, your clients, um, GA accounts or anything. So uh, moving client side, uh, I realized that the, the level of information that's available is, is just astounding. I, I just never saw myself going back to agency side after that. So Photobox, you know, I was doing acquisition and that incorporated, I was still doing a lot of the traditional marketing, uh, digital marketing, but there was a lot of, uh, there was a high, a, a high volume of experimentation that we were doing. So landing page testing, user journey testing, price testing, new customer versus returning customer testing. Um, uh, followed by all the analysis that went with that. And I actually, I, I fell in love with that. And um, uh, by sheer chance, I, I got promoted up into the head of analytics role over the head of acquisition role, which I was actually turned down for probably the best decision that my boss ever made. Uh, and then I, I did that for a few years. Um, I just, I absolutely fell in love with um, A-B testing, experimentation and analytics. I then moved to Ladbrokes for a year. Uh, that, that was probably my favorite job ever just because the gaming industry is so rich with data um but unfortunately i had to leave that just because there was a they merged with garlic coral and uh they moved the department out into gibraltar uh, then i did then i moved to news news uk for a short period and um i i i i, I didn't quite f- i found that the the company probably wasn't the right fit for me or maybe i wasn't the right fit for them and uh, so i got offered a role working in-house at moo which is a uh, they they do business cards um it sounds it sounds really dull when i say it like that but actually they're a very quirky design first company i just i, I love everything we, we use them we use them yeah we use them in fact we used them after the fact you held that meeting at the moo offices and it, it got my interest and uh we got all our cards from there now and they're very good Oh, I'd, I'd love to know the ROI on um, on, on the crap talks uh, and how much how much money they generated off the back of that crap event. Um, so I, I should look into that. 
Uh, and then I did, I, I did that for a while, and then and and I, I got offered a position a bit closer to home. So my wife and I had our second uh, second child, and the ability to work a bit closer to home uh, meant that I could I could spend more time with my with the kids. Uh, so I took the role. It was it was a tough decision leaving Rose. It was such a fantastic culture, such a great company to work for. Um, but it, you know, like. I assumed I'll, I'll never get this time back, so I made the leap and went uh, somewhere a bit closer to home. So I'm now working for Teletext Holidays, and, and you know that brings me to where I am now. Um, yeah, interesting. So, so there's, I mean, there's a whole bunch. I mean, it's a very interesting story, and I think it, it illustrates um, it illustrates, I suppose, a different way in which you and I came into this industry. So, so um, you, you you worked in marketing first of all, and you know you talk a lot there about things like um, PPC and acquisition and all this kind of stuff. And and what interested me when I came into this world, you know, when I worked. At Qubit was there was a whole industry out there, the digital marketing, um, that was it made incredible use of analytics and data um, that used very different terminology and and used and in a way used different ways of analysis and uh, and you made a lot of use of things like stats and you mentioned A/B testing as well and it, it kind of fascinated me how how data driven and how analytical that world is and, and how it sensibly used similar tools to what I was used to using, but in a completely different way. And, and, and you know, the terminology you used and so on as well. I mean, again, what, so, so you moved from digital marketing into analytics. I mean, that was, you know, what, what was it? What was it? You say you fell in love with analytics. What is it? What was your motivation around that? I think it's the richness of data that was available. When you when you work on digital marketing, you have access to ultimately one data source, two if you start branching out, two or three if you start branching out to SEO and display advertising. But ultimately, for me, my my primary data source was AdWords, um, which is now which is now called Google Ads, and um, we, it was essentially uh, the click data, the average position of those keywords that you were bidding on, um, how much do they cost you, and the revenue. And, you know, potentially if you're lucky, um, and the and the uh, the AdWords account was connected to the uh, Google Analytics account, you've got access to the number of orders and uh, that came through and, and revenue. So, you know, you're dealing in a very, uh, uh, in, in a siloed industry, but actually a lot of what happens after the click will determine the impact on the click. So, you know, you could have the best keyword, the best ad copy driving to the website. If the website experience is, is terrible, um, you know, it's it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make the, the performance of your ad uh, key- keywords look bad. So actually it was the what happened afterwards that I, I, I just completely loved. So when a customer went onto the website, how they interacted with the pages that they landed on, the funnels that they were going through. So being able to visualize that and see where the drop-offs happened, where the opportunities to improve happened, you know, it, it was that uh, insight. And, the, and actually the ability to influence that, which was great as well. So when, so one of the problem, one of the challenges I found as if I, if I put, if I wear two hats, my analytics hat and my uh, experimentation optimization hat, um, if I for a moment, if I take what the the optimization one off, just look at the analytics one. You get to, you know, you get to see what's happening, where people are dropping off, and where they're going. But you don't have much control in in, in being able to influence where they go next or prevent them from going somewhere else. And actually, it was that second hat that I went that I was able to put on, which was which was part product manager. It wasn't quite a product manager role um, because you're not touching an end-to-end experience, but you just you know you're making changes on the website to try and influence behavior. It was that the ability to influence what happened on the website, which I absolutely loved as well. So I guess it was a um, you know double-edged sword. The data that came with moving in-house, um, as well as the ability to influence how customers are interacting with the website. Okay, so so let's so there's a, there's a ton of stuff in there, and, and and I'd like to go into some of these more these concepts as we go along. And but but for somebody, imagine um, for somebody who isn't so familiar with um, you know, in-house and, and digital marketing and all that, tell us your role at Teletext Holidays. You know, you're head of conversion there. 
Um, what, what does that mean? What are you responsible for? And what do you do kind of like when you get in the morning on a Monday, for example? Yeah, sure thing. So um, I'll start off with the title itself, Head of Conversion. Um, I'm not, we call it conversion and optimization in the industry. I'm not really a big fan of that uh, term because it implies that you're always optimizing towards the, you know, the, the end goal, which is revenue or orders. Um, actually, I prefer the term experimentation because what you're doing is you're experimenting on different aspects, aspects of the website. If I could change my job title to Head of Experiments, I probably would, but um, it's uh, I might have a board with my boss later, actually. Um, but essentially what I do is I, I on a Monday morning, I come in. Uh, uh, first thing I do is I, I check the, uh, the, the performance of the previous week in terms of traffic, uh, the overall conversion rate, so how many people um, called through to our call center to make a booking, um, it, you know, were there any days where we were down, were there up, um, any issues that I could flag or highlight. Actually, this isn't just a Monday morning, I do this actually um, most days. Yeah, that's, yeah, fair enough. Um, and then once I've kind of like got an idea, once I've got an idea of the, you know, the, the, the time period that we're in, everything look, looks okay. I then hop into um, our A-B testing tool and I check the, exper the, 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 you know, the state of the experiments that are running. So um, I know <laughs> there's, a bit, there's a bit of a, a, um, a joke that goes on in the CRO industry about peeking at your tests. And uh, you're not really supposed to peek at the results of your experiments just because um, you, know, you might introduce some bias, you might draw conclusions too early. Uh, I would say that the person who's running the experiments, provided they have an unbiased view on the world it's okay for them to check it's it's really the stakeholders and the people who are you know potentially it's, it's going to impact their area and their numbers they're not allowed to check uh, to peek at the results because they're more likely to um jump to rash conclusions or whatnot um, so essentially i check in on each one of my experiments and just make sure that they're running okay um making just essentially just make sure nothing's nothing's gone wrong um then it's followed by uh, a catch up with our with the rest of the team. So we have a weekly conversion meeting conversion meeting on a Monday, uh, which involves going through the experiments that we have live, any experiments that are coming up, um, any experiments that are in detail uh, in in uh, development, and what stages uh, and when you know when we can roughly look to release those experiments into uh, in, in, into into production. So it's I, I guess that's fundamentally the role. Obviously, you have things like um, you know, your, your, your weekly trading meetings where you're looking, you know, just analyzing the state of the business. But if I just look at my role in isolation, that's essentially um, uh, how, how it is. And then, you know, then it will be ad hoc analysis, trying to find other areas of the site and um, uh, other areas of the site that I can try and help. Okay. Okay. So, so again, somebody new to this would would be, you know, people, people most people are familiar with the idea of things like Google Analytics. So, going in there and seeing how many page views you've had, or seeing how many kind of, I suppose, uh, you know, unique visitors you've had. But you've been talking there about uh, experiments, and you know, we mentioned A/B testing and so on. I mean, again, just a, a sort of layman's. If you're going to do a layman's introdu in, in, uh, introduction into what you think, what you what you're referring to as experiments, and um, what are you trying to gain by that, and what's the purpose of that, really? Yeah, um, so it's a good question. Um, I think if I was to put it in in a nutshell, everyone everyone's aware of clinical trials, or they, you know, to to a certain extent, you know, you 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 have um, the pharmaceutical industries who will have a set of patients with identical features um, or, or similar features, you know, be it age, gender, nationality, all those things, and they'll divide those people into into, into two uh, into two groups, uh, and usually this is done through randomization. So by randomizing your um, 
you know the audience that you have you're less likely to introduce any biases into into you know to, to into it so um you take and then you take you know you take your audience and then you you give one of them an experimental drug and you give the other one um, usually a placebo and then you measure the impact of the experimental drug against the placebo and you see if there's been an improvement in in, in conditions in health um you know whatever it might whatever the criteria is that you're looking at um in a similar way we do the same thing with with websites we get users you know we get customers visitors users whatever you want to call them they come to the website and usually through some type of a b testing tool we randomize the traffic now if a customer fits the criteria of the experiment that's uh, uh that's that's going on so it could, you know, it could be that the person is on a mobile device, they're on on a particular browser, they've come at a particular time of day, or they're looking at a particular set of products. Um, once those criteria criteria are, are met, the the groups the customers will essentially be split into two groups or three groups. But let's say for the sake of arguments, two groups. One group will be shown a control version of the website. So let's say we're talking about a product page. Um, the that that's the control group they'll see the page as it is as it was a week ago uh, and then you've got the second group which is the experimental group or the variation and they will see a modification of that page that could be anything from a different an image it could be a different price it could be a different layout it could be you know it, it could be a whole bunch of things and you then measure the impact of the change you're you've made against that control group to see if there's an uplift in the, in the metric you're trying to measure so this the metric could be a conversion it could be average order value it could be you know the ability to add on additional products into the cart so you know uh, accessories um I, you know it could even just be making it through into the next page so uh, and then once you know you you run that for a certain amount of time that's uh, uh this is where the statistics comes in you run that for a certain amount of time and you analyze the data and you try to see if that data uh, if the differences you're seeing if you you know on the surface you you won't get an exact number you'll see slight variations but it's the role of the statistics is to determine if that variation is significant or if it's random so um, ultimately that's that you know i hope that makes sense um, it does in my head yeah so so something that struck me when i when i in the end i was responsible for some products in this area and, and what it struck me is interesting was the degree to which stats are important on this and and you mentioned stats there um so so um how much um, do you have to be a trained statistician to do this and how much is it important to understand stats and probability and so on in this in, in your role i think anyone that claims to be working in the field of experimentation and, and optimization should have a at least the uh, you know a high school or a level level of um, statistical understanding i think without that you know you're 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 likely to draw incorrect conclusions you might you know you might look at the data and and and, and you know see a see a an outcome that doesn't truly exist and this is where the statistics is important the statistics isn't actually telling you if it's guaranteed it's just trying to say um to what degree uh, of accuracy uh the the difference you're seeing in the data exists so uh, i i in because i'm quite connected to the cr you know the cro industry I, I you know i see a lot of blog posts and i just you know read a lot of stuff um and maybe go to you know go to quite a few talks um i've realized that there are two types of um experimenters whatever you want to call them um, optimizers out there there is the people who can come up with the test ideas you know who you know they're great at finding um things to test on and then there's the people who can analyze that and draw statistical conclusions and i i i i rarely meet someone who is in the middle um i i my i kind of like strive to be in that middle but i would probably say i'm slightly more towards the statistics side i'm probably closer to the middle um 
than than I, I I'll let myself believe. But um, I, I I think it usually swings one way or the other. Um, and you've got the data science side of you've got the data scientists who are on that right hand side of the spectrum, which are, you know they're very analytical. That you know they can look at frequentist calc- uh, methods. They'll look at Bayesian statistics. You know they'll do all the fancy data science stuff. And then you've got the the, the guys on the other side who you know who the, who are great at seeing the problems that users users are facing uh, and and coming up with ideas to test on it so um i think that middle ground is where everyone should be aiming to be so the data scientists and analysts and um the statisticians should be you know starting trying to move a bit more towards the left and towards the middle and the guys who are on the left hand side the product managers the marketing managers the you know user researchers and user designers they should be moving a bit more to the right towards that middle so, so how, how, I mean, so one of the challenges I had when I was, so, you know, we used to run A-B tests and, and we'd get a set of results, we'd get an uplift, we'd get a whatever. And then we'd try and understand why, why something happened. So, you know, it might be that we got less of an uplift than we expected or, or, or in a, you know, how, how, how easy or what process do you use to try and work out, well, what, why did it happen? And in general, kind of making sense, I suppose, really the results and, you know, trying to work out segments from that and so on. What, what's your thoughts on that? So I think you can do you can go about doing this in one of two ways. You can you can do some type of user research testing. So say you've you know you've run a test and the hypothesis for that test was sound, but the results and the outcome of that test didn't quite match what you were expecting to happen. I, I think the best thing to do is go and look at it qualitatively, going out and speak to your customers, um, doing the whole user research side of things. Um, Alternatively, you can go on. You know, you can do what I do because I don't. We don't have access to a user research team. I try to, I I try to anecdotally try and understand what happened. So I'll give you an example. Um, We recently ran a test which, by all accounts, should have performed well. You know, the data suggested that it should have performed well. Um, The uh, heat mapping software that we were using, you know, suggested that this should have worked well, but it didn't work. It it did not perform well at all, and um, it. Uh, I actually had to call it early because it was doing so bad. And I, I, I normally shouldn't call tests early, but I, I'm of the sound mind. And, and, you know, I think you can call these types of tests. We're not on Amazon. We don't have unlimited uh, sets of traffic. So, you know, making a best judgment call. Um, but the reason it didn't perform well was because um, we'd overlooked the fact that, uh, so the test itself, we were uh, we were testing um, our, our hotels from low to, from price from low to high. And, um, even though data suggested customers were looking at that, uh, when I ran the test and made the default sort option low to high, I found that the test didn't perform well. So I won't give any um, numbers away, but the reason it didn't perform well, actually, it was actually having spoken to our product, um, our physical product manager. So the guy who goes out and makes deals with hotels and all those companies, that are, you know, all the uh, holiday uh, uh, sellers, that the, the hotels that were priced really low, we just didn't have good content for them. So what we were showing is by default, we were showing a whole bunch of hotels which lacked decent imagery, which lacked decent content. Um, and because the sort option is, is kind of like tucked away in our search results page, um, that, you know, and I, I can't validate that, but that was the best conclusion I could come to as to why this test by all account, you know, that, that failed uh, when all accounts showed that it should have performed well. So even though customers were interacting with the feature, you know, they were, they were sorting themselves. Showing them the default didn't work because we just lacked the um, the content to be able to produce a good uh, search results page. 
Okay, so you, I mean, you talk, you know, we've been talking about the idea of running a single AB, you know, single AB test where there's kind of two options there, um, and and running for a period of time and so on. But obviously, one thing I picked up on from, and we'll get onto it later on about the, the crap talks you organise. But the industry in general now typically talks about maybe running multivariate tests or doing more than just kind of trying to do one thing at one time and that's it. What what does state of the art look like, or what are the current kind of, I suppose. Uh, good examples you're seeing of, of testing and experimentation being used um, to, to you know drive growth in in, in businesses. Um, I don't know. If, I, don't, I don't know how many people do multivariate testing. Um, I, I I guess for me because I, I think for most companies that I, I and that I, I've worked with and most of the, a lot of the people I speak to, you know, we work for companies which don't have access to unlimited traffic sources, which means that we have to be. Uh, I'd also say selective. We can test a whole bunch of things. Um, but if we start running multivariate testing, that takes a lot longer to validate. It takes a lot longer to come to any type of statistical uh, conclusion and confidence just because you're, you know, you're testing uh, you know, uh, multiple variations. So A and B, A and C, B and C, and A and C. So it takes a lot longer to validate those type of um, multivariate tests. So actually, a lot of the, a lot of the people I, I, I know are, are currently just doing A-B testing, multivariate testing. Um, as far as I know, is is probably reserved for the the, the big boys, for lack of a better word. Right. Um, so, so I mean, I mean, I know I knew you again from when I worked at, at Qubit, and Qubit, as you obviously aware, and the idea of personalization, and and actually, an argument there would be that A/B testing is is something that has, I suppose, a limited amount of a, a runway it can go down, and the true answer is to go towards personalization. I mean, what, what's your putting Qubit aside and just looking in general at, at, at how far? testing can go and what's your view on that is it something where the return returns in it are limited or is it one more is it a stage in the evolution process towards things like personalization what's your thoughts on that um i'm actually going to quote someone who probably gave the best example of personalization i could, I could probably give and um imagine you go to a restaurant and uh you, you know you see you know the waiter takes you to your table and you sit down and um you know you, you sat down you've already got your knives your plate your glass selected for you and the only thing that they get, you know, they, they might ask you to choose is um, the food. And then once you've chosen your food, they'll make a recommendation on the wine. But they, you know, they haven't actually tried to personalize the basic experience for you, which is, you know, which fork do you want? Which spoon do you want? What type of glass do you want? You know, they, there's a whole bunch of, all of that's been pre-chosen. I think, I, th- I think there's a myth that personalization is the ultimate goal for every company. I don't think it's right for every company. Um, I think if, if, you're, if you're a company which has a high volume of return traffic um, or you're a company who you know who, you, you record data and you're creating content on behalf of the customer. So for example, I used to work at Photobox. Photobox is a great example where you can make recommendations and you can really personalize the experience. Ladbrokes was another example. When I was working at Ladbrokes, we actually, uh, we built a proof of concept recommendation engine because the frequency of which customers were returning was so high that it, we had so much data on one person that it made sense that we could actually try and predict what they what they might be interested in in, 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 in investing on next. Whereas um, if I look at when, when I was at Moo, our return rates are quite low. So even though there's an element of personalization in there, for example, like Photobox, um, the, the the frequency of which customers come back to the website is is just so low. And then on top of that, are the depth of product. So uh, whilst we have multiple different types of products within our our, our uh, our range. So, for example, you can have a, a square business card, a thick business card, a glossy business card, a matte business card. It's still just a business card. So, an element of so personalization in that doesn't make sense. I mean, 
maybe once you've run out of everything to do, I imagine personalization would probably be the next thing. That's what I would have done. If I was if, if I if I was Selectmo, personalization would probably been right at the end of my roadmap. And there's there were so many more things that we were we we were testing uh, from pricing to imagery to experience and rec um, and recommendations in terms of kind of like the the finish on your card. So you've already built your product. You know, you might say, hey, have you tried the uh, rounded corners or the square corners or the matte finish? I think that made a lot more sense. But trying to personalize, you know, someone's buying business cards, trying to personalize a, uh, a homepage for them, which shows them notebooks and postcards. It just it just didn't make sense. Much like travel, actually. Um, so we are, you know, we've, we've kicked off uh, some basic uh, personalization, which is just, you know, your last viewed hotels and last viewed searches. But it's it's probably not a um, something we'll, you know we'll focus on right away to go down to the nth degree. So you know I, I think personalization comes down to a one to many, one to few, and then a one to one approach. I think for most companies, a one to few approach is okay, where you analyze a whole bunch of customers and you show them roughly the same thing as opposed to a true one. -to -one. So what did you think when you heard, did you hear when obviously Dynamic Yield were acquired by uh, McDonald's? And, and that was interesting, wasn't it? Because Dynamic Yield were a big player in that personalization market. And, and yet, and they, and they were bought by McDonald's, who presumably making quite a big kind of, quite a big play in that area. Was that something that you, you noticed at the time? Yeah, actually, I, I was surprised when I saw that. Um, and I, but I haven't heard anything since. I don't, I don't know, maybe I've missed the memo or something. Um, but I imagine, I, I don't know if, if, McDonald's purchased Dynamic Yield um, for the purposes of integrating their McDonald the McDonald's side of the business with personalization. I'm sure they'll use it to a certain extent for, especially you know when McDonald's are doing their, you know their monopoly uh, deal that they do, they, their seasonality stuff as a, as opposed to their day to day BAU stuff. I imagine they'll probably do it for something like use it for something like that. But it just makes sense to buy um, a a company that does personalization because it's I'm sure it's profitable. I mean Google just bought. Um, Oh, oh god who did google just buy and then oh looker they bought looker looker yeah they just bought looker and then um there was another big acquisition salesforce just acquired another big company and tableau yeah tableau yeah. that's right and then um i think content square and usability just merged so i you know i i i, I guess I, you know you see this stuff happening all over the place and i guess it's just good business sense as opposed to mm -hmm. you know yeah. I, don't, yeah. I, mean, I don't know. I'm probably the worst person yeah. to ask about why McDonald's <laughs> purchased a uh, personalization company. I can't. I can't see it being a um, the, the sole purpose of that purchase being to personalize the McDonald's experience, especially as, as unless they suddenly start changing their food, which is uh, you know getting really really healthy. So, so Smith, I wanted to say to you, are you, you. So, you mentioned that the thing that really interested you in, in in this area was was working out what happened after somebody kind of arrived at the site. You know, so after the click, you said that. Um, and and so, what are the? I mean, so to me, that says trying to work out what somebody wanted to do, what they did do after they landed on the site, how they went through that, how they interacted with stuff. I mean, how do you go about doing that? And and what are some of the challenges or ways you do that? And and how does that kind of work really? Yes, I, th I think you're um, you, you're probably now moving more towards the topic of product analytics. Um, so I, f I find um, product analytics is I, I I don't think it's an established field as much as customer analytics is or you know all the finance side of the business because what you're doing is you're when you're talking about say let's let's take a really you know basic example of um, 
the, you know, the finances of the business. You know, you, you know exactly how much money you, you generated, how much of that went to uh, was profit, how much of that will cost. You know, you do your EBITDA calculations and you can project, you know, your one year, two year, three year costs. It's, you know, it's, it's fairly straightforward. There's, there's, there's usually very little gray area. Um, customer analytics is, 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 I guess it's sort of similar. You know, you know, the, you know which customers purchased, which ones didn't. You know uh, what they purchased, you know, when the last time they purchased was. And, you know, you can, you can calculate something like customer lifetime value. These, these type of metrics exist. These, these type of, you know, there are pre-built functions into things like R and Python to be able to do these type of calculations. So I feel like things like customer analytics, you know, for the finance side of things, you know, they're, they're mature areas of data analysis. Now, product analysis for me is it, it's, it's, it's still relatively new, even though loads of people have been doing Google Analytics for quite some time. It's, it's, it's been around forever. But the you know the rise of the product analyst um i i think the product analyst needs to be very different to a, a traditional customer analyst or a um or, or a financial analyst. The reason being, the product analyst needs to understand the business that they're working in. As you know, they need to understand the customer. They need to be, you know, they need to understand the experience on the website. A whole bunch of things. Uh, they need to understand how we track, how we collect data, um, how events are fired. Whereas, you know, from a customer analytics perspective, you you, you know, you have your name, your gender, your date of birth, your address, you know, your your purchase history. And and you can probably live with that, you know, within uh, um, a ring-fenced amount of uh, data. Whereas the product analyst, depending on the company you work for, that could be widely different. You could be tracking everything from, you know, the number of bets you place when you're at, a, a, you know, say you're at a betting gaming website to, um, you know, the number of, uh, the, you know, the calls you make to a call center to book a holiday, which is kind of like what I'm, I'm, I'm in right now. And the you know the events and the experience you have you, you on the site is captured very differently and you have to try and quantify that experience so you get you, you know you get um customer uh, research tools out there which you know you know they do heat maps and they do all sorts of things but um when you're when, you know, when you're looking at it from a pure quantitative perspective and you you know you're trying to understand x number of people made it to section a particular section of the site and why percent made it to another you know, section then you want to understand why isn't it the same rate you know you can it could be pricing it could be your the, the imagery you show it could be the experience something's not working uh, it could just be that that you know the the data isn't co- uh, co- uh, collecting properly and you're you know um you've potentially not tag something properly so you're unable to analyze it so i i feel like product analytics is it's still very much in its infancy i, I you know I, I don't think um there is a, a a bible on how to do product analytics because it's so unique company to company um and you know you can have the skill sets but it takes time to understand the business how they collect data and what to look for yeah, I mean, so so when the light bulb went off in my head, actually was was uh, I interviewed uh, Yali Sassoon from uh, Snowplow um, on on here a while ago, and um, and and he made he he made a comment which I think was was illuminated it for me. And he said, you know, the thing about the thing about doing analytics on things like transactions and, and revenue and customers and so on is you're generally averaging your you're kind of looking at trends, you're looking at fairly you know you're, it's a fairly straightforward calculation you're doing. Whereas when you're doing product analytics, you're trying to understand what was somebody doing, what were they intending to do, and did they manage to do it? You know, and you're looking at a different type of analysis. You, you mentioned event event level analysis there, but it's a lot of it is about you know cohorting and and understanding intentions and segmenting and so on. Is that something that you you know you see as well? And is that these are techniques that you use or you've seen used? 
Hmm. Yeah, and I think this comes down to how creative you are as an analyst. So um, uh, I, I, I wrote a blog post a while ago about um, it's uh, around how an analyst needs to have, uh, sorry, as someone who does conversion optimization, uh, it's, it, it's, it, they, they can't just have a process, they need to have a mindset in terms of um, the creativity that flows. And this comes down to, you know, if, if you can't put yourselves in the shoes of a customer, you're never going to be able to analyze what they're doing. Um, and you may not get it 100% right, but if, you, you know, if you're analyzing a large enough data set, you can maybe draw some conclusions or at least point your user research team in the right area to be able to say, hey, can you go look into, you know, this part of the website, which um, customers arrived to it and they should have been doing um, this, but they're not. So, you know, they weren't successfully able to do it. You know, why do we think that is? And, and you know, sometimes you don't even need to go into a whole piece of user research. You can, um, you can pick it out quite quickly just by adding on a heat map on top of it, or you can, um, you know, you can have someone in, in your company just go and play with that for that part of the funnel with a, you know, completely unbiased view and just you know ask them to feedback. So there's this there's, there are ways to do it, but I think it comes down to as a a, a product analyst needs to be creative. I, I, I don't think the product analyst and the customer analyst are, are cut from the same um, same cloth. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So, so a topic that I keep hearing when I go and see my customers now is is number number one number one challenge to them is is around um, acquisition and looking at their acquisition funnel and trying to understand where, where the marketing money is being spent and which of the channels is most effective. And a lot of this comes down to the kind of attribution, really. Um, and you mentioned earlier on about you know you get data from say Google Ads, you know, trying to link that maybe to kind of individual IDs and so on. I mean, what what's Maybe just explain again, what, what is attribution and what is the problem space that this is talking about, really, do you think? So um, I think attribution, uh, it's, it's something we're trying to solve. Attribution is when you come to a website, there's a, there's a strong possibility that you took a whole bunch of steps um, before you got there. So, so sorry, rather, before you make a purchase or you book a holiday or you place a bet or you know whatever it is you, what your company does, before you do that, there's probably a whole bunch of channels that you as a customer has, has touched so you know it could have been you've seen a facebook ad or you've seen a display banner somewhere or maybe you you did a a, a generic ppc search so you know you, you just searched for something like um holiday to france whatever it might be um and then you know you've done a few things and then finally you come back via the brand search term say for example or you directly go into your browser and you type in the url of the of the, of the, of the company you're working for uh, or you're looking for rather and you you know you make that eventual transaction um now on a classical last click model you would attribute um all of the weight of that um uh, that transaction to that last click but actually those you know it ignores a whole bunch of uh, things that happened before that so at, what attribution does is it tries to um give credit to each one of those channels and it does it you know you, you can have different attribution models you can have first click last click evenly weighted um or, or sort of like a um decaying you know so your first click gets the least and your last click gets the most but then there's a, um, a, a kind of a curve somewhere in between that so attribution is just trying to solve that problem but again i think like mo I, i'm a skeptic i i think a lot of companies are trying to do attribution when they don't need to be um i think attribution is only really valid for customers for companies which have a a, a considered purchase that's more than maybe a week say randomly that's an arbitrary um timeline but you know for example I, I think attribution for a holiday company works really well you know if you think about the way you as a customer would book a holiday you're not going to go to your first website and book you're going to shop around you're going to do some price comparisons you're going to look at dates destinations temperature you're going to do a whole bunch of searches you're going to talk to your friends you, you know you, you're going to do a whole bunch of things whereas you know if you're working you know if you're looking to buy say for example um i don't know uh, 
a book uh, <laughs> for I, I can't think of anything better. It's it's probably you know you're probably not going to deliberate on it on the decision to buy a book too much. You're probably just going to go uh, if the price is okay. You're probably just going to buy it. You know you don't need a thousand reminders uh, and emails say to you know to, for that book. You probably either know if you're going to buy it or not, uh, or you do what I do on Amazon where I add it to my wish list and pray that Amazon drops the price on it, and then then you buy it if it's a bit out of my price range, uh, or you wait for a Black Friday sale. You know something along those lines. So I think uh, attribution for me is is it's it's a dirty word um, that a lot of people have just made because uh, it's sexy now. You know, there's a whole bunch of that, those sexy words floating around like machine learning, AI, all of those things that, uh, that they don't mean anything. People just throw them around to you know to, to make themselves um, sound important. But I think for me, attribution is it's it's time and place, just like personalization. I don't think personalization is for everyone. I don't think attribution is for everyone. So, so one, I suppose one of the themes that's been in the industry the last kind of couple of years is around privacy and you know, GDPR and things like there's been changes with um, you know tracking that Apple are doing and so on. I mean, in in, in your observations and your experience, how much are people's uh, awareness of privacy and maybe I don't know the rules like GDPR affecting things? And does it mean you can't do your job? Does it mean how, how does that how does it change things really? So I think um, I think GDPR is. Only, only really spikes when there's a news article. So the impact of GDPR only really spikes when there's something in the news. Um, so I remember when GDPR came out, I was working at Mo. Uh, for the first sort of like one month, we had a huge spike uh, in customers who were requesting their data be deleted or, asked, or requesting access to their data. Um, but by month two, that that number sort of like, you know, exponentially decayed down uh, to almost in less than half and then by month three it was, it was less it was half again i think by like by month four or five it was that you know we maybe got like 10 requests a month um for, for, from customers who are so I, I don't think gdpr is 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 it's huge obviously if you if you break if you you know if you have a breach in gdpr you know you you know you've, you've been hacked or something like that that's a very different story and i think i think gdpr did the right thing it, it, pre- it prevented all these black hat techniques for getting past customers to sign up to your website like you know double, double negative so do you agree to not have you know all that i i absolutely used to hate those sort of like we call them um, in the industry we call them dark patterns um and i'm, and I'm sort of glad that gdpr um helped you know weed out some of that those trashy techniques because you know essentially you know their techniques reserved for the growth hackers you know the uh the people who are trying to get some fast numbers in through the door by you know using unethical means so i i, I, th- I think gdpr was is it's great for the population i don't think it impacts most people it just helps come keep companies um stay uh you know stay above the water and, and stay honest but I don't think you know. If I if I think about my wife who does not work in digital, she has you know. She, I, I mentioned the word GDPR to her. And she had, I don't think she had a clue what I was talking about. Yes, interesting. So so I mean, I suppose last question on this topic. I mean, um, so so would you would you say that experimentation and and that kind of thing is something that customers do when they're very mature, or is it something you would do from day one of a product company? I mean, where where does it fit in in terms of the life cycle of a business, really? In in your view, I think you can do it right from the beginning. So I've so I. I'm going to answer this question um, with the caveat that I've only worked at established companies, right? So, so my answer on this is, is going to be slightly biased, but I think all companies can do experimentation and testing right from the word go. Uh, I, I don't think experimentation should be used to block 
actions being taken. So, you know, if, if, if you come to a point where every decision you make needs to go through an experiment, I think that's probably wrong, especially at early stages where, you know, you want to get products out there, you want to get them live, you don't have enough traffic, so you just want to put it out there and, you know, just be a little bit bold. But I think for, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with large scale companies, you know, they, they definitely should be experimenting um, and trying different things. Um, and, and I think the statistics will vary depending on which stage of the company, you know, your, your company is at. So if, if you know, if, there, if you decide to do experimentation at an early stage, which you should, um, you probably shouldn't test everything, but certainly some like the core functionality of your, of your product or your website. You, you know, you'll have a much smaller sample size, which means you're going to be shooting a bit more in the dark than you would if you were at a company which had loads and loads of traffic. So where you can draw um, statistical significance and you have higher confidence levels and, you know, your power values are at like 80 percent. And you know that your chances of seeing false positives and false negatives are you know are going to be slightly lower. So if you're at an early stage. You definitely should be testing. You know, you should be testing your pricing. You should be testing your, you know, your, your features. You should be testing the flow. But do it with a caveat that you you know you don't wait for that ninety five percent significance. Uh, you know if it doesn't move the needle a lot, then you know just don't wait it out. Just make the change. Go ahead with it. But I think companies will uh, like like well and certainly with uh, teletext, we we you know we're still not the Amazons and the Netflixes of the world, uh, so we do have finite traffic. But you can you can wait a few extra weeks to you know to get that a bit more. I don't want to use the word certainty, so quotation certainty in in, in the change you're about to make. Uh, so, uh, but I think in generally, every, everyone should be doing testing and the degrees of the testing you do will depend on where your company is. Okay. So, so again, another reason I wanted to talk to you was uh, you, you run these uh, fantastic set of meetups called the, the, well, called the Crap Talk. So tell us, what, tell us about that name and, 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 and how it links into what you're doing now, really. So just give us a bit of an overview of what that is and, the, and your, your kind of motivation behind it. Um, so Crap Talks actually came... Uh, out of two from two reasons one i was extremely bored because um we were i, I was transitioning from one job to another there wasn't much work happening because you know, this is um when i was at ladbrook so we'd just been sold and we were moving the um, out to gibraltar so i didn't have really much work to go but i was going to a lot of me um i don't want to say meetups because actually i was going to a lot of conferences and i absolutely hated them so even when i had nothing to do taking a day out of the office or half day out of the office was a was you know it's, it's a huge constraint on someone's time and it's a huge amount of their resources that they're giving up to go to your conference and what i found was that most event organizers they didn't respect me as the attendee they had the utmost respect for the um speakers you know that you know they would be it was their time they valued and they forgot that actually without the audience there is no event and so what i did is i you know i I had some time to kill so i thought you know and and also the other the, the events i was going to were very much siloed now if you think about Conversion Optimization Analytics Product Development, um, which is also the acronym. So CRAP stands for Conversion Rate Analytics Product. Um, there is a nice Venn diagram somewhere where the three of those come together. You know, you build something, you test it, you an- or, sorry, you build something, you analyze, you test, you build, or you analyze something, you test, you build, or you test something, you analyze, you build. You know, the, the three, those three areas are so interlinked that I found it really strange that there was only product-related events or analytics-related events, or at the time, there's hardly any conversion-related events. I think I think um, Crap was one of the first ones, certainly in London, that was very much conversion-focused. Um, so, I, you know, so, I, so I decided to put one in the diary and, and hope for the best. Um, the first event, um, it wasn't called Crap initially. It was called London Conversion Rate Optimization Analytics and Product Meetup. One conference, so I can't know exactly what I called it, but it was a real mouthful. It was actually a friend of mine who says, Bab, why don't you drop the O in conversion optimization and then just squish it all together and make the word crap? And I was like, holy shit, that's uh, sorry, excuse my language. Uh, that's genius. Um, 
So I did. And that's how that's how the that's how crap was born. So the, it was actually crap two. The first one was actually just London, London conversion optimization on the six product. Um, but that's how, you know. And, and the first event we ran, there was like ten, I think twelve people in the that came. Qubit loaned us their office space uh, downstairs, which was nice and intimate. Um, and but we had you know we had so much fun. We talked. Um, it, it was very conversational. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't speaking at the audience. I mean, it was easier because there was only 10 people there, 10, 12 people there. But we had so much fun. We thought, you know what, let's do this again. Um, so I did it again. And the next time around, like, I think something like 20 people turned up. Um, and, I, and I started, the first, honestly, the first one was just, you know, whoever I could get to speak. But after the first one, the second one, the third one, I started shaping it around um, what I initially, you know, the reasons why I initially started Crap, which was the the unqualified speakers who were talking at these big events or the, you know, the mismatch of audience and speaker or the very salesy um, techniques that uh, these these conferences were having. So the other, the other thing was all the conferences I was going to were very salesy. I had to walk past something like 10 or 15 stalls before I even made it into the auditorium to hear the talk, you know, and then you had vendors giving away a whole bunch of uh, merchandising and it was just, uh, you know, I can't, I, I think I took away more bags of merchandise than I took away um, uh, ideas and 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 things I could ap- apply into my day to day life, and I realized that was that that was fundamentally the problem. So I started crap, and um, you know we're about to do our fourteenth one, and uh, you know it, it's it's almost two and a half, almost three years later. So and here we are. So it's a community now of almost two thousand people in London, um, with a couple of chapters um, in Manchester, Istanbul, and, and as of late, uh, Berlin. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there is the, there is the conference kind of in, in military industrial complex, isn't there, in some respect, where, where, where you know, there, there's a whole, I know this is my Oracle days, there's a whole kind of like uh, world of conferences that is, is supported by sponsors that has all these stands, as you say, and they have the same speakers going around and then you fly from country to country and you do this and, and often you might get a sponsor, uh, vendor sponsorship. And, and it's actually quite a, life, quite a nice lifestyle for the speakers. Um, but but yeah, and I'm, yeah. And, I'm not, and I'm not saying that these things are done um, in, in not considering the attendees. But I've I've found the uh, the meetup scene uh, that I've encountered, obviously now in this world and with Looker and so on, really interesting. They're much more intimate. They're much more um, you know smaller space. The speakers is the speakers aren't quite so kind of hallowed, and, and it's typically the audience off half the time standing up and speaking. Um, I find them really good, and the fact they're in the evenings is means people you know people can go to the the fact that in the evenings, I mean, people who go to them actually have got a real job to do. You know, often, often when you run events yes. during the day, it by definition, by definition, by definition, people haven't got anything to do during the day that come to those events. And 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 so it's, it can be an interesting kind of uh, you know audience sometimes as well. But but I've seen obviously I noticed that the the no commercial side of it was important for you, and I and I always kind of think that's quite good because it it kind of sets the scene. And I also I typically say no no commercial, no recruitment, you know, or at least not overtly really, you know, because what you don't want is is a place full of kind of recruitment consultants as well. Um, and, and it works well. And I'm, I think I spoke at one of your events and it, it was good and I enjoyed that. And, uh, but the, but the, <laughs> I think it was one of the funniest talks we've ever had. I think it was about my kettle, wasn't it? I think, yeah. And the, I, that was the one, yeah, that's what I spoke about. The, I scraped the Daily Mail comments. And what was funny was the Daily Mail were actually in the audience. And when I left there, I went to go, go to the lifts. Uh, the two, there were two journalists in the, in the lift with me as well, which was from the Daily, from the Daily Mail, which was, which was interesting um, and slightly awkward because I'd, I had no idea. Actually. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting. <laughs> 
Um, um, no, but your point, you know, your point around um, the sales stuff is, you know, it's absolutely right. Um, it, especially after work, you know, you've, you've just finished a long day. Um, and, I, you know, go, going to conferences during the day is not, you know, it's usually not because you don't have anything to do. Maybe for some people, you know, if you're at a certain, if you're at a certain level in your career, you know, you're probably just sitting around checking emails every, uh, half the time. But um, for a lot of people, especially like myself, it's a day out of the office, it, you know, it's not something I, I want to do because I know I'll, I'll come back to a mountain mountain of emails or or i'll be behind on something but i'm hope i'm going with the ambition that i'm going to take away something that i think to myself wow that was you know that was a great talk why didn't i think of that or i could try that or maybe you know we could do something differently um but i found more often than not that that wasn't the case and actually a day out of the office um it was it was stressful it was uncomfortable i don't really like networking um I, you know, it's 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 just uncomfortable. So, you know, being in the evening, crap talks. You know, you've just spent a hard day at work. The last thing you want is to be cornered by, uh, you know, someone who's trying to sell you their product or recruit you. Um, and actually, you know, we actually have sponsors who are a recruiter, uh, so Pivotal London, um, Usabilla, who do user research surveys, and um, and a CRO agency um, called uh, Creative CX. And and those guys, they they actually started off as attendees. And they loved the 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 event so much that they offered to you know, to sponsor. And at the time, I wasn't really doing any sponsorship, but it was starting to grow, and I was paying for drinks and everything out of my own pocket. That it, it the the help was appreciated, but they were so you know they're really respectful and they actually stayed within the boundaries of what I'm trying to do. And then you know they they've not been allowed to talk. They support the event but they don't actually put up banners and they don't put up uh, you know they don't try to sell their services or anything like that. So you know so they understand the the values and the mission and actually they're they're those guys are part of the reason I've been, you know, able to grow into certain area, uh, into into these different uh, locations. So it's. Uh... So so tell us about that then. So you you've now you've now kind of you say you've got different chapters in other countries. How's that working, and what's your involvement with those? Uh, so it's not as as. Um... <laughs> I'm not there, which is which is sad. Like I'd love to be in Istanbul mm. every time there's a crap event, yeah. um, or in Manchester, or you know the, the Berlin one that we're, we're going to do in September. Um, there, it, I, I sort of we have. So I don't know if you know, but we have a crap talk Slack community. So, I actually, I, yeah, I'm on it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. Okay, um, you've. Well, I've got I've got a job to do. I've got. A... Uh, you, you're very quiet in there, Mark. I think you're just the lurker. You you know you're you're, you're, you're probably just sitting around reading. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> Ah, fair enough. Okay, um, but yeah, so um, like we have the we have the Slack community, uh, which helps me stay in contact with um, the guys in Manchester, with the guys in Istanbul, and and and, and Scott, who's helping me run in, in Berlin, and and we you know we, we we just we just talk about we just talk in there and what's going on. If they need any support, I sort of have a whole bunch of rules and uh, on. I don't want to say onboarding document, brand guidelines, that's the word. Um, so to make sure that those guys uh, sort of like live and breathe the crap values. So, you know, like I, I did the whole thing of treating it like a proper company. So we have a mission statement, a vision statement, some rules. Um, so, yeah, so I, I manage it remotely. I think this this is the beauty of the internet and, and, and the digital age. Is I can, you, can, you can start something in one location and expand it out to different parts of the world and the country without ever having to physically be there. So, um, so that's actually how I've just grown it. Fantastic. Well, look, I mean, this, so we're recording this um, sort of middle of July. I think the next meeting, when's, when is the next meeting? It's, it's going to be going out after that event, but when is the next one, just so people are aware of the cadence of it? 
Yeah, so the next one is at the end of uh, end of July, so thirty first of July. Um, so if you're if you are listening to this podcast, which you're most likely to be um, after the event, you can always just go onto the website because uh, we do record all of our events now. I'm um, sorry, mm-hmm. Mark, we actually started this after your um, talk. We mm-hmm. like, you know we, we, we had such good speakers that we were like, mm-hmm. why aren't we capturing this? So we actually have a video section. So if you are listening to this um, after the event, it's finished. Good, excellent. So, how do people find out about the uh, crap talk, the crap meetups, then, and uh, and and I suppose find your details on the internet and that sort of thing? Um, is, am I allowed to pitch myself and and you can? Yes, yes, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I was I was trying to respect your rules of this. You know, we're not selling anything. So no, technically, crap no. talk is free, so I'm not selling it. Um, yeah. But you can just go to the website craptalks.com where. Uh, you'll find all of the content um we have a youtube channel so if you just search crap talks you can uh, find us there or you can find me on twitter uh, with the um the handle dodo nerd d-o-d-o-n-e-r-d that's uh, that's just uh, don't ask about the alias it's something that i created when i was 21 Uh, i just haven't changed it um so yeah they're, they're probably the three best channels Hey, fantastic. Well, look, Bav, it's been great speaking to you. Really appreciate you coming on and uh, speaking, yeah, coming on the show. And uh, yeah, I mean, interesting insights there into the industry. And uh, and and um, I'll try and come along to your next event as well. So it's uh, yeah, it's brilliant. Nice to speak to you. Thanks, Mark. Um, it's, it's it's been a lot of fun. Um, if, you, if you know if anyone has any questions, just feel free to put them my way.